Greetings, friends. It's the weekend of April the 18th. And we're going to begin this Sunday, this weekend, a new series. And we're going to be looking at the book of Hebrews. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through chapter 2, verse 4 today, which I'm going to go ahead and read, reading from the ESV translation. The supremacy of God's Son. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation, the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape it if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witnesses by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be holy, pleasing, and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So I was having a conversation with some folks and the conversation turned to the situations that we see, the situations that we've seen this week, the things that 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 hurt, the things that we um, have frustration over, anger, fear. We were discussing the world, the world we find ourselves in. We commented on the fears, the tensions, the sense of 
futility that prevails in so many circles these days. One of us had read the eighth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans where he speaks of the whole creation groaning and travailing in bondage and futility stamped upon all things. And in our conversation, the question came up, what can we do about this? Well, as, as Christians, as believers, we know the answer to the world's problems. But the problem is how to make the world believe the answer. In our conversation was a younger believer who was troubled by the conversation. And when the concern looked, he said, why is this? Why doesn't the world believe what we have to say? And then he added, I think it's because so many Christians don't act like they believe it themselves. Then he asked the logical but provocative question. How can we make Christians believe what they believe? Well, that's the very theme of the book of Hebrews. How to make Christians believe, how to make Christians act like Christians. This is what the world is waiting to see and what Paul was written to affect, or excuse me, what this epistle was written to affect. It is addressed to a group of Jewish Christians who had begun to drift, to lose their faith. They had lost all awareness of the relevancy of their faith to the daily affairs of life. They had begun to drift into outward formal religious performance, but to lose the inner reality. Doubts were creeping in to their hearts from some of the humanistic philosophies that abounded in the world of their day, as they do in ours. And some of them were about to abandon their faith altogether in Christ, not because they were attracted again by Jewish ritual and ceremony, but because of persecution and pressure. They felt it was not worthwhile. They were losing too much. And that it was possible, just possible, that they had been deceived. And the message of Christ was not true after all. No one knows exactly where these Christians lived. Some feel this letter was written to Hebrew Christians living in the city of Rome. Others believe it was written to the most Jewish city on earth in that day, to Jerusalem. No one knows for certain who wrote the letter either. In the King James Version, it says the epistle of Paul, the apostle to the Hebrews. No one knows for sure. If you read this letter in English, you are almost sure, almost certain that Paul wrote it, since so many of the thoughts are very obviously Pauline in their nature. But if you, if you can, if you can read Greek and understand Greek, I, I, and what I gather, I understand that you are equally certain that Paul did not write it, because the language used is far different than in the other letters from Paul. There have been many guesses throughout the centuries including perhaps Luke, Silas, Peter, Apollos, Barnabas, and even Aquila and Priscilla. Some have felt that Priscilla wrote it, and if that's the case, this would be the first letter in the New Testament written by a woman. Whoever the writer was, they see one thing very clearly, that Jesus Christ is the total answer to every human need. No book of the New Testament focuses on Christ like the book of Hebrews. It is the clearest and most systematic presentation 
of the availability and the adequacy of Jesus Christ in the whole of the Bible. It presents Christianity as the perfect and the final solution. Not Christians as perfect, mind you, but the belief in Christ is the perfect and final solution simply because the incomparable person and work of Jesus Christ permits mankind free and unrestricted access to a holy God. In every age, that is man's desperate need. You see, there is no hunger like God hunger. We're going to, to a degree, ignore chapter divisions as we go through this epistle, this letter. I read in a commentary, on the best tradition, those chapter divisions were put in by a drunken man riding on horseback. The first section covers all of chapter one and then the first four verses of chapter two. And we will move rapidly through this because it is it is one letter in which it's easy to become bogged down and then to miss much of the the thrust or the point or of this wonderful argument. So there's a there's a need to have a pace. We must move fast enough to see where the writer is going and and slow enough to make sure we're not missing the point and not getting bogged down in all the detail. The argument in this first section is really very simple. Somewhat bluntly and immediately, the writer declares that God has spoken to man in Jesus Christ. This is the theme of Hebrews. The very nature of that word indicates that Christ is a stronger word than than came through the prophets. He also has a greater name than that of the angels, and he himself is a surer word to man than the law. So with that as our focus, let's jump in. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him also, he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So in those three short verses, we learn four, or we have, excuse me, four amazing themes. First of all, that the word which now comes to us in Jesus Christ, both by what he said and what he was, because remember, he is the word, is a stronger and more inclusive word than God ever spoke through the prophets. So when we read the Old Testament, we are reading the word of God. The voice of God is heard through the various forms, the circumstances. If we open the book of Genesis and read the story of the creation and the flood, then follows that very straightforward narrative of of the patriarchs of the faith of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Then Then we have the gravity, the heaviness of the law, the sweet singing of the Psalms and the psalmist the exalted beauty of the prophets, the the wisdom, the homespun wisdom of Proverbs, the delicate tenderness of the Song of Solomon, and then this marvelous mysteries of the prophetic writings, Ezekiel and Daniel. All of it is of God, but all of it is incomplete. It never brings us to ultimates and to absolutes. But when we open the pages of the New Testament, and we read the fourfold picture of Jesus Christ. We find that all the old merges into one voice, the voice of the Son. The symbols and the phrases by which God spoke in the Old Testament 
are merged into one complete conversation in Jesus Christ. So God's word to man has been fully uttered in the son. There is nothing more to be said. Jesus Christ is God's final word to man. Therefore, the word through the son, Jesus, is greater than that through the prophets because it includes and surpasses theirs. It is also greater because the son forms the boundaries of history. The writer says, whom he has appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. That phrase, the heir of all things, he is looking on into the future as far as the eye of man can see. The prophetic pattern woven into the revelation of God has already been fulfilled to the very, very letter. As far as we have gone in history, Jesus himself in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 and in Mark 13, those prophetic passages indicates plainly what the end would be. He himself is the terminating point of history. All things will end with him. This is Paul's argument in the letter to the Ephesians that all the events of the ages shall find their fulfillment. They're going to find their meaning in Jesus Christ. He stands at the end of the future as he is also at the beginning of the past. He is the creator of the worlds. All things come from his hands. He is the originator of all the processes of life. Nothing began or exists but what began or existed in him. Jesus makes this claim himself to the astonishment, to the astonishment of the Jews. He said, before Abraham was, I am. John 8, 58. Further, his word has greater power than the prophets because he sustains the matter of the universe. We read, he reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature, upholding the universe by the word of power, his word of power. In the hills behind Stanford University, there is a linear accelerator. It's, it's gigantic. It's two miles long. A gigantic instrument. What's it for? Well, scientists hope that it will prove to be the great lever, if you will, by which they can pry the lid off the secrets that lie behind matter. They are trying to find what makes the universe tick, what holds it together. And as man probes deeper into the secrets of the universe, around him he discovers more and more that he is confronting the mystery of an untouchable, an unweighable, an unscalable force, that he stands face to face with pure force. What is that force? Scientists never name it. In fact, they cannot name it. But the scripture does. The scripture says that that force is Jesus Christ and that he holds everything in place, whether it's large or small. The reason we can sit here comfortably in these seats, even though the earth is whirling and spinning at a furious rate is, and not hurled off into space, is simply because he sustains the universe. He is the secret behind everything that exists. More than that, in, in the final statement here, <clears throat> his word comes with superior force because he redeems man and nature. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
we talked earlier that we, we all feel the futility which seems to be covering everything today. Why is it that nothing ever completely satisfies us? If we can get certain things, we think we'll be happy. But once we get them, we soon lose all interest. Why? We do not believe that the world has intended, was intended, excuse me, to be this way. And the scripture confirms it. <clears throat> the scripture revealed the fact that, that the world in which we live is a world in desperate need of redemption. It needs to be brought back out of the uselessness and restored to its proper relation where it was originally intended to be. All this is included in the great statement when he had made purification for sins. When he had come to grips with the thing that is destroying human life and making this universe such an unpleasant place in which to live. When he had dealt with it fully, he took his place beside God on high. And that is why his word is greater than the prophet's. In the next section, the writer moves on immediately to compare Jesus with angels. Now, the ancient world made a great deal of angels. They worshipped them in many of the ancient religious rites. Angels are the demigods of the Roman and Greek pantheon. Therefore, this letter, Hebrews, was written to people who particularly had an interest in angels. The writer deals with this very rapidly, thoroughly, um, but this in this subject, you know, it may not interest us as much today as it did then, but it's still tremendous revelation about the person of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus, says a writer, has a greater name than the angels because first because of his relationship. Picking up in verse four, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he was inherited is more excellent than theirs for to which the of the angel for to which of the angels did God ever say you are my son? Today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The contrast is between a son and a servant. Angels are servants, but Christ, Jesus, is the son. There is a difference between a son and a servant, and that is the difference between Christ and any angel. He is greater because of his relationship, and the fact that he is a son is that relationship. You see, blood, I guess, is always thicker than water. C.S. Lewis points out what we, what we make with our heads is always something different than we are. But what we beget with our bodies is always the dearest thing in the world to us because it is part of us. Thus, the angels were made, the son was begotten. What we beget has the same nature we have, what we make is always different. The angels being made cannot have the same relationship as the son who was begotten. Both Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus Christ was nothing more than an angel, the highest created angel. They identify him with Michael, the archangel. But this passage in Hebrew utterly demolishes that theory. It's a wrong theory. For Christ is a son and not an angel. To what angel did God ever say, you are my son? Second, Christ is greater than the angels by the demonstration of worship. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Verse six, we only worship that which is superior to us. The worship of the angels at Bethlehem is testimony to the deity of the babe in the manger. John Bunyan said, if Jesus Christ be not God, then heaven will be filled with idolaters. For in Revelation and Daniel, 
the, those books that give us a glimpse into the heavenly realms. We send, we see 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of angels engaged in worshiping Jesus, the son. So he is seen to be greater than the angels by the demonstration of worship. Third, his superior, his superiority is evidenced by the demonstration of authority. This section begins and ends with a word about the angels. When in between, while in between is the contrast of the position of the son of the angels, he says, who makes his angels whims and his servants flames of fire? What are angels? Servants and ministers depicted by wind and fire. In our daily life, wind and fire, two elements which are more than man can handle because they frequently get out of control, yet they are made to be servants of men. These symbolize the angels superior to being in superior to men, yet servants of men. The quotation concerning angels is from Psalm 104. Then he moves to contrast the son, quoting some quoting from Psalm 45. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The son is the originator of all things. Behind all material things lie that behind all of that, the thought and the intent of the heart. And he says of the son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. You have loved and hated. What God loves and hates is the motivation for what takes pl- place within the universe. No angel can make that claim. And again, he moves to another quotation, this time from Psalm 102. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Christ is not only the originator, but the sustainer of the universe, the one behind all things, eternally keeping it going until at last it runs down. Notice a very interesting thing here. Scientists among us. There is here described very plainly what has been called the second law of thermodynamics, the degenerative faculty of the universe. All things will grow old like a garment, but not the one who made them and keeps them, the sun. His third argument in this contrast with the angels is taken from Psalm 110. Uh, Hebrews chapter 113 reads, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Again, here's the one who waits at the end of history, the termination point of all the events, the one for whom all things exist and toward whom all things are moving, the heir of all things. All things find their purpose and their meaning only as they relate to Jesus. And then he comes back to the angels again in verse 14. Are they not ministering spirits sent forth to serve for the sake of those who are to obtain salvation? Again, what are angels? Servants. But the Son, but the Son is God. Christ is not only a stronger word than the prophets and has a higher name than the angels, but in the next four verses, the writer cont- comes to a third conclusion. He is more sure than the, he is a surer word than the law. Picking up Hebrews chapter 2, 1 through 4. 
Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape it if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So what is his conclusion? This is why Jesus said again and again to the people of his day, he who has ears to hear, let them hear. Repeats it all over Matthew. It too often we are able... It is not too often we are able to hear truths like these, truths that go to the heart of life. But he that has ears to hear, let them hear. So the warning is, let us pay attention so we don't drift. There are two reasons why this message is particularly valid. First of all, it is valid by comparison with the law. If the word spoken by the angels, that is the law of Moses, had validity, and those to whom it was given found that it was absolutely true in experience, then this message also was true. And if the angels could give a word like that, how much more, how much more the word that comes by the Son? That's the argument. The confirmation of this was the testimony of Israel's history. So here's a race of people, the Jewish people, to whom the law was particularly given. And they were told that if they would obey it, they would be, they would be blessed. If they disregarded it, they would be cursed. There is no people on the face of the earth who show more a consistent pattern of cause and effect than perhaps the Jewish people. Wherever they have gone in obedience, there has been blessing and disobedience. There has been cursing. If the law had that effect, a law spoken by angels, how much more shall the words spoken by the son have effect? The second confirmation is the, is this message is, is valid in view of the form of its communication to us. It was spoken first of all by the Lord. This, that is a most impressive argument. What Jesus Christ has to say is the most authoritative word the world has ever heard. This message did not originate with the apostles. It did not come to us by means of prophets. It came through the Lord himself. He spoke it. So, so it was confirmed by eyewitnesses. This, this is an unimpeachable argument. Any court in the land will accept evidence if it is confirmed by enough eyewitnesses. Here is the evidence of Christianity confirmed to us by numerous eyewitnesses who were there and wrote what they saw and heard and did. And it was attested by signs sent from God himself, by wonders and, and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his own will. It is still attested this way. How can we explain the gifts that develop among Christian people, the ability to do certain things except as we recognize the Spirit of God is at work. What an impelling argument. And it all focuses down to one question which the writer leaves hanging in the air. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It's not a threat. It's simply a question. It is addressed both to Christians and to non-Christians. To the non-Christian, it says, where are you going to go? How will you get out of God's universe? How can you escape the inevitable? Indeed, why seek to avoid that which is unavoidable, a confrontation with the one who is behind all things? How can you escape? 
And why would you attempt to do so? Especially when his purpose is not to curse, but to bless. How can you find deliverance by any other route, any other path, by any other channel, since it does not involve the one who is behind all things? In other words, wherever you go, there he is. (laughs) To the Christian, the writer is saying, it's not enough that we know Jesus Christ. We must use him. Let me, let, you know, not, not the way, not how that sounds. We can lose so much even knowing him unless there is a day-by-day walk with him. We, lo- we lose peace and freedom and joy and achievement. We are subjected to temptation, frustration, bewilderment. We're baffled, barrenness without him. And if we do not go on as Christians, if we do not grow, a serious question is raised. Have we ever really begun the Christian life at all? Or is this but sort of a, some kind of self-destructive fraud, an attempted uh, in order to meet some outward standard, but without any inward change in the heart? So he leaves the question hanging in the air, haunting, unavoidable. And that's where we're going to leave it as well. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? I want to close by reading 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.